And it's a question that I don't know if we ask ourselves that often. And certainly when we're walking down the street, we don't go up to someone else and ask them the question directly. But here's the question. How's your soul doing? How's your soul? We might ask ourselves the question, how am I doing? And I think the response to those uh, to that question tends to be external answers like the state of my work life, my family life, my financial stability. But that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, how is your soul? That inner person, uh, the part of us, the center of us, you, your past present and future, your hopes, your longings, your desires, your passions, your gifts, your individuality. Now God, it seems in the Bible, places a much higher premium on your inner person than He does on your external realities. I love 1 Samuel 16.7 where Samuel's identifying the next king of the nation of Israel. And, and the Lord speaks to Samuel and says, the Lord looks not on the things that you look at. Not on the external things. Not on the way you look or, or the job that you have or your career ambition. The Lord looks at the heart. You see, God is looking for soulful people, deep people. He wants people who are finding their replenishment in Him. And I also want to tell you this, I think that the world needs these types of people. I like this quote from Richard Foster. He says, the desperate need today is not for a great number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. Because the world that we live in is anything but deep. I mean, we are in this culture that is frantic, frenetic, and shallow. Very shallow. I mean, that's why we forget about our souls, because we're, we're thinking about everything else but our souls. We live in a world that thinks of ourselves mostly as a body, and we might think that we have a soul. But when God looks at you, He sees first and foremost a soul with a body. What does shallowness look like? Well, it looks like training, trading meaning and purpose for ambition and success. It looks like trading strong connection for convenient connection, like social media where I have a lot of people who like me, but I don't necessarily commune with them. Or being too busy to make space for God, or when I do talk to God, I'm so busy talking at God that I have no time to listen to God. And shallowness makes for empty souls, anxious souls, discouraged souls, and addicted souls. How can, how can we go into these goals that we've been talking about for the past four weeks if spiritually we're all tied up in knots. How can we help anybody? Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. That heart is, again, the inner core. It represents the center of your being. It's where your relationship with God occurs. I like what these authors had to say. A life without heart 
is not worth living, for out of this wellspring of our soul flow all true caring and all meaningful work, all real relationship, and all sacrifice. So how can we care for our souls and cultivate them in the context of a shallow culture? And I think as we come to that question, we'll see the answer given to us in the Gospel of Luke. That's right, we're getting back into the Gospel of Luke, but we're going to jump ahead a little bit to answer this question this morning. We're looking at Luke chapter 10, verse 38. And we're going to look at a story about two sisters. Then we're going to read about a model prayer. And then we're going to hear two parables from Jesus that, again, deal with this issue of caring for our souls. I think that if you've gone on this journey of 21 days of prayer, you probably felt refreshed and encouraged. Was that true for you? It was true for me. But the big message that I hope we see this morning is don't stop caring for your souls. That's the big idea. So let's examine first a story of Mary and Martha. And as we look at this, we're going to see our soul and our priorities It begins in verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Now, over the course of his ministry, Jesus developed a deep friendship with three siblings, Martha, Mary, and their brother, Lazarus. Uh, It's likely that this town that he's gone into is Bethany. It's just outside of Jerusalem, and we understand that this is where they lived from John's Gospel. Now you have to ask yourself the question, if Jesus was coming to your house to visit, how would you prioritize your time with Him? And I think we're all wired differently. We all have different approaches to how we prioritize time. And right here in this book, we see Martha and Mary who seem to have different priorities. Look at verse 39 and 40. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Mary, uh, Martha was distracted with much serving. And when I look at these two sisters, I, I see the contrast between duty and devotion. Duty is when we operate out of a sense of obligation. Devotion is when we operate out of a sense of love, loyalty, and enthusiasm for a person. Pretty different, isn't it? Obligation versus love, loyalty, and enthusiasm. Now, I think it would be wrong to assume that either of these sisters loves Jesus more than the other. Okay? That, that's not what this story is telling us this morning. No, it's showing us two different priorities. Serving Jesus first or being served by Jesus first. And that's the question. Which comes first? If Jesus comes into my house, should I put all of my energy into being the hostess with the Moses? Or should I sit at His feet and hear from Him? And of course, We can't boil this down to an either-or situation. We we do need to serve Jesus. We need to offer up our time, our talents, and our treasures. But we also need to take time to enjoy Him. His Word. 
which today for us is the Word of God, the revelation that's come to us from God. But not just reading the Bible, because you can turn this into a duty as well. But coming into the Bible with a devotional heart. Where I am not just seeking to learn facts about God, but I am seeking to know God in His heart. As we move forward, we'll see that if you just stick with duty in your spiritual life, that your heart attitude towards God will actually sour. And that's what happens to Martha. Look at verse 40. And she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. You see, the sense of the word distracted used of Martha's activity uh, is to be pulled away from something, to be dragged away. The implication is that Martha wants to be doing what Mary's doing right now. She wants to be sitting at the feet of Jesus. She wants to be learning from Jesus. She wants to hear from Him. But the problem is, is she's being pulled away by her own little agenda. Many of us have been there. If I don't, who will? This is the type of loss of priority that leads church members to say, well, I'll serve Jesus even at the expense of my devotional life. I know that inside my soul is fried, but I'll deal with that later because right now the children's ministry needs me. You know what I hear when we make statements like that? I hear little Messiah complexes. God's work won't continue unless I do it. Now no one would dare say that out loud, but that's what that is. And our soul in this state turns sour have you ever had this happen? You're so busy serving God that all of a sudden you grow exhausted and you no longer want to be near God. You walk into a ministry context or setting and there's this low-burning guilt in your soul because you know you haven't even talked to Jesus in prayer. Or you're telling people, you're standing up and you're telling people to love Jesus, but you know inwardly that you are distant from Jesus. And you feel so sour that you start looking at him as a cruel taskmaster instead of the one who said, come to me all of you who are weary and heavy laden with burdens and I will give you rest. Friends, I've been there. It's a dark place to be. It has all the makings of spiritual burnout. And when you look at People in church leadership, not just myself, not just pastors, but people who are serving Jesus, most people experience burnout. Why? And you don't have to be a pastor to experience this. You could be a parent. You could be a spouse. You could be someone working in the medical industry. You could be a counselor. Essentially, anybody who is just caring for other people and pursuing the mission of God could experience burnout. Now, you might hear Jesus' next words as a rebuke, but I want you to hear them 
as an offer of freedom from the hamster wheel that you've been running on. Look at verse 41. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Basically, Martha, you didn't have to do this elaborate, over-the-top hospitality for me. It didn't, you know, the table settings would have been just fine with the normal table settings. You didn't have to make those extra cupcakes. You could have kept it simple. Because why? One thing's necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. And what did she do different than Martha? Well, Mary prioritized her soul. She prioritized her soul. She knew that hearing the word of Jesus and encountering the presence of Jesus was life-giving. If she was living today, that would look a lot like Mary setting aside time, reading her Bible, praying, and asking God to change her. Now, have you ever been on a flight? Some of us are terrified of flying, so get over it. It's really important nowadays, I guess. You've got to go across the you know, country. But you've been on a flight, right? And you've heard the flight attendant give out the directions. And the flight attendant says something along these lines, in the unlikely event of a sudden loss of pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop. Place the mask on yourself first and then help the child or the person next to you. Now when they say that, you, you might think to yourself, you know, that's kind of selfish. And here you got this person next to me and I probably, especially a child, I should probably help them first, right? Of course we know that's not the right order of operations, is it? Because you're not going to be of much use to a child if you're laying next to them unconscious. That's the point, isn't it? Friends, we live in a world that is in spiritual crisis. I mean, there are people who are far from God. They have no sense of who God is. They have no sense of what the Bible says. They have no sense of what real love looks like and feels like. And how can I be of any use to them if I am spiritually unconscious next to them? Because I'm not caring for my soul. So the real question now we need to ask ourselves is how do I do this? How do I care for my soul? When you look at the next verses, and we see Jesus praying again in the Gospel of Luke. He prays a lot in the Gospel of Luke. And after he finishes his prayer, his disciples approach him with an important request. They say, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. Now, it was customary for rabbis to have a prayer that they would recite to their followers. The followers would memorize. So John the Baptist has done this. He's given his followers a prayer. And the prayer that we're about to look at is the Lord's Prayer. This is Jesus' pattern for prayer. The secret to this prayer and the secret to cultivating healthy souls is this, the power of consistent small time commitments. Sometimes we read stories of prayer and there were these spiritual people of old, right? Who woke up at 3 a.m. in the morning and they spent 
four hours of their day in devotions before they left for the house and then they went uphill both ways and worked 15 hours and somewhere they got sleeping, right? But what is a small, consistent time commitment? Well, I'm talking about 30 minutes, not necessarily two hours. I'm talking about creating space in your daily rhythm. Space means that there's a certain time when this happens. And I'm also talking about naming a place for that daily rhythm to happen. Uh, They used to call this a person's prayer closet. So for me, the, the space is somewhere between 5 and 5.30. I'm a morning person. Not everyone's a morning person. Some of you need to have a much different space than I have. And for me, the place is one chair at my kitchen table where I lay my Bible out and that's where I meet with God. It's important to have both of those. You need to think about your devotional prayer habit as a steady drip of water that carves the rock. Now, look at Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. He says, Father, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Now, here are a couple of structural observations of this prayer. Again, it's okay to repeat this prayer formulaically, but there's also a pattern to this that can be very instructive to our prayer life. And the first is that the prayer is both vertical, so it's addressing God and God's concerns, and also horizontal, praying about ourselves. Also, we notice that the prayer begins with God's concerns and then it moves to us. We see that the prayer encourages us to pray for both our physical needs and our souls. And I would submit to you that the prayer roots out four sinful traps of the heart, which are ungodliness, anxiousness, bitterness, and addiction. So prayer begins with God because God's concerns matter most. When we pray, hallowed be your name, when when we say, your kingdom come, we are prioritizing God's priorities. In the Bible, a person's name was their reputation and all that is said about them. So when you pray in line with the Lord's prayer, God's name stands for all that He is. And you're praying that to God and you're asking God, I want to see your name seen, known, recognized, and even savored amongst the people where I am walking, Lord. Help me to be a light that shines that forth to them. And praying in this way, prioritizing God's priorities, combats the spiritual heart trap of ungodliness. And what is ungodliness? Well, there's a book that only the most courageous will read. This book is called Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate by Jerry Bridges. And I'm serious. Uh, don't go into this one unless you're ready to kind of have your steel toe boots on, all right? It is a serious read. He defines ungodliness like this. 
He says, ungodliness is living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God or of God's will or of God's glory or of one's dependence on God. Now James in his uh, little epistle tells us that this is often why God doesn't answer our prayers. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So our prayers can be this grocery list of all these things that we want God to do for us. And that's really the only time we're really even bothered to talk to Him. I need something, God. Can you help me out right now? Can we kind of fix this so I can go back to my life as it was? But God doesn't honor those types of prayers. God honors prayers where our concerns flow out of His concerns. But don't mistake this. Don't hear me saying God doesn't care about your concerns. He does. He cares about our concerns. That phrase, give us our daily bread, means bringing your immediate needs to God. These are the things, has all the makings of the things that we are anxious about on a daily basis. For this culture, daily bread really was the concern. They didn't have grocery stores. They didn't have uh, shelves stocked with food. But for us, it might be something entirely different. It might be that situation that's hanging over your head right now. Presently. It might be that thing that's going to happen in the future where you just are anxiously role-playing all the scenarios of how this could go. And you're tied up in knots about it. God cares about those situations. Peter tells us, cast your cares on Him for He cares for you. You know what else Peter says? To pray, give us our daily bread. He says it requires humility. I have to believe that I need God on a daily basis to pray that type of prayer. And I think Jesus begins with these physical needs because that's where we're at. That's where we begin. We live in a physical world and it can be very difficult to think outside of the physical. But notice in this prayer that he doubly emphasizes the soul. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, I was touched by Lexi's story when she was telling me about that internal struggle to forgive herself. Can you imagine at eight years old already dealing with these matters of the soul, well, that must tell you something about us, doesn't it? We are soul creatures. And um, this soul issue, this struggle for forgiveness, is, it happens in, in many different domains. It happens with our enemy, the evil one, where he throws guilt at us. It happens with past relationships where someone is holding something against us that we've done and no matter what we say or how often we say we're sorry, it's never good enough. And again, with our own selves. So just as regularly as I need to go to God for daily bread, I need to go to God for His grace. I need to hear all over again that everything's okay. 
Because some of our souls are tied up in knots because we haven't dealt with guilt. Now, when it comes to your guilt, the only person that you need to worry about ultimately is God. Jesus said, what could you ever trade for your soul? And the fact is, there is a soulful reality. It's called sin. Uh, We can deny it. We can downplay it. We can ignore it. We can suppress it. We can refute it. But our consciences are constantly speaking to us and saying, you need to do business with God. There's something that's separating your relationship with Him. And your soul will be broken until you deal with that sin. But God is graciously provided a way for us to deal with this. Our sin and our guilt. This is why Jesus came. He lived the life we couldn't live. Jesus lived a guilt-free life. It means the Bible says that He never sinned. He never did anything where anyone could accuse Him or say that He had done wrong. And then the Bible says that He leveraged that life, a sinless life, upon the cross. And He died in my place. That's the core of the Gospel. He died in my place. He bore my sins upon Himself. And the Bible says that that's where we find freedom from guilt. The word Savior means that you can't deal with your own guilt, that you need someone else to deal with your guilt. But isn't that marvelous to think about it? Our consciences tell us that I can never forgive myself. I can never move away from this thing that I did in my life. There's no way to get over it. But when you trust Jesus as your Savior, no one has the right to condemn you for your past. Not Satan. Not someone who refuses to forgive you. Not even yourself. I mean, don't you want that kind of freedom? That's the kind of freedom I need. And the Bible says the way you get that freedom is if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Why wouldn't you want that? The way you get that is you have a conversation with God. It doesn't have to be anything spectacular. You don't have to jump up right now and say, I declare Jesus is Lord. It can be a a quiet conversation in your heart, even right where you're sitting. Jesus, in the best way I know how, I put my trust in you. Now just as we need forgiveness, we also need to let go of bitterness. Some of your souls are very sick this morning because you won't let go. You're holding on to it. Your soul has this amazing ability to archive hurt and wounds and disappointments from years ago. For to think of it like a computer, you have an internal hard drive that quietly files away those moments and you say to yourself, oh, I've forgiven someone, but then something happens, it triggers a memory, and without warning, that file opens, it catches you off guard, and you feel just as bitter and angry as the day it happened. And some of you, it's not a past thing. It's happening right now. You're not talking to someone. You're avoiding them because you're bitter. 
Well, friends, you have to liberate your soul from that. That is a trap. And the way you liberate your soul is you stop playing the role of the offended party. Hurt and inner desire to set the record straight, it might feel good as you nurse that in the moment, but ultimately it's poisonous to the soul. So how do you deal with that? Well, what I've found in the Scriptures is you have to send those archived files from the internal hard drive up to the cloud. Get them off the internal hard drive. Put those matters in God's hands. Let Him sort out those corrupted files. You don't even have any business sorting all of that out. Because you don't know how everything went down. We're not good at that stuff, but God is great at that stuff. So last, we move into the portion of the prayer that says, and lead us not into temptation. Now, a big part of caring for your soul is bringing the sinful habits that you struggle with on a daily basis or a regular basis to God. Listen to Paul's words. I'm reading from the message paraphrase. He says, I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. Temptations hook our souls. They present like opportunities for quick satisfactions. We say to ourselves, this is going to please me. I'm going to do this quietly. No one's going to know about this. And, and then it turns into a trap once again. You ever seen a fish get hooked? You've seen the struggle, haven't you? It thrashes, it tugs. It pulls. It thought that it could take this bait and it was a free one-time meal and then it could move on, but there was a hook inside of the bait. And after it goes through all of that struggle, eventually the fish succumbs. And it goes with the pull of the line. It accepts the inevitable. And that's when your temptation becomes an addiction. One author writes, an addicted person is a confused soul, not a healthy one. The addicted person loses the ability to tell reality from fantasy and the person becomes confused about what really does satisfy. So a part of the regular soul work that you and I need to engage in is to recognize the danger of temptation, to pray to God for strength. I think everyone in this room has an issue that you need to bring to God on a daily basis, that you are addicted to, that you are struggling with. It could be anger. It could be that bitterness that we were just talking about. It could be something like gossip. It could be an addiction to pornography. It can be whatever the human imagination can create. That's how big this can go. So whatever it is, part of my prayer habit involves me telling God what God already knows. He knows you're dealing with that. Well, why do I need to bring that to Him? Well, if He already knows it, can't He just help me with it? 
Well, what I've found is that this opens your heart to let God work on that issue. Again, it's the slow drip of water that shapes the rock. And that's why we need to keep coming back to Him. Consistent, small time commitments. Let's take a look now at our soul and our trust of God. And can you expose God to the the deepest parts of your heart if you struggle to trust God? Isn't that really the big question? Can I trust God with my inner world? Jesus is challenging me. I mean, he's, he's going to pretty deep places here. He's saying I need to forgive that person that I can't even look at right now. He's telling me that I'm addicted to something and I need to learn how to bring that before God on a daily basis. But how do I know, how do you know that you can trust God with yourself? Quietly, many hearts struggle with trusting God. You struggle to believe that God's willing. You struggle to trust that that God has your best interests in mind. And I think, I wonder if some of you struggle to pray because you are hiding your soul from God. You're afraid that He will not like you if He sees who you really are. He knows who you are. He knows everything about you. And I hope as you hear these two parables that we're about to look at, that these will be freeing for you because Jesus says, rest assured, God does care. He does. Verses 5-8, through And He said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and the children are with me in bed and I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. I think of few things that could happen that would get me to knock on my neighbor's door at midnight. I mean, I would need to say, see flames and smoke pouring out the window. But really, what we're talking about in this passage is an emergency. In ancient Palestine, their expectations, their commitment to hospitality was legendary. Everyone in the neighborhood's reputation was on the line. If someone came into the village after dark and you had to have something to provide for them, So here we have this man who feels compelled to knock on his neighbor's door at midnight. Now Jesus says, because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now we could also translate impudence as shamelessness. And shamelessness is either good or bad depending on the circumstances If you went to a restaurant and accidentally belched out loud in front of the whole restaurant, bad, right? Embarrassed. But in this case, there is this legendary hospitality expectation. And so the actions of this man are viewed as 
praiseworthy. Look, he won't let his guest go hungry. Isn't that a big deal? Now, Jesus' point in this parable is if this grumpy neighbor can be moved to ask because of this persistent prayer, how much more can God be moved to act? Meaning that unlike this neighbor, God is not reluctant. He's not grumpy about it. With God, there is no back and forth struggle like I need to get him into the place of willingness. In fact, the big idea that we learn about is God is always willing to receive our prayer requests. And if that's true, then that means we have a job to do. That means that we've got to start peppering God with prayers in line with his heartbeat, which is this Lord's Prayer. Day by day, God, I'm going to keep coming to you. I'm going to keep asking. I'm going to keep seeking. I'm going to keep knocking. Look at verse 9 and 10. I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. So we see that God always answers our prayers. Do you believe that? Sometimes He answers yes. And I want to say this. When you learn to pray in line with God's concerns, I think more often than not, God's answer is yes. Sometimes He says no. And other times he says, wait so you can grow. But every time he answers your prayer with your best interest in mind. God always answers your prayer with your best interest in mind. So prayer in Scripture reading places us in that space where God can do His transformative work in us. Because in reality, prayer is less about moving God and it's more about moving us. And as a good father, God intends to give good gifts as we seek Him in prayer. Look at that last parable. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? And if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Do you, do you ever question if God's good? His greatest gift to you right now is presently with you, the Holy Spirit of God. Luke saw that. And that's why he put Jesus' words in this way. That's God's greatest gift to you. God Himself dwelling in you. Now, we've all seen those reality TV shows that highlight extreme makeovers. I don't know about you, but I, I get hooked on those things once they start, of course. Uh, you have this frumpy girl and she's going to go to chic, or you have this guy that needs to lose like 50 pounds and magically in the course of 30 minutes he does. <laughs> And you're so hooked. You're, you're just waiting to see the results of what's going to happen. And when she comes out, you're like, oh my goodness, do you see how good she looks right now? 
And we, get, we all want this type of change. We have a hope for it. Entire industries built on it. Gyms and self-help groups and books and church programs. But the most extreme types of makeovers are not that which occur in the body. It's not about cosmetic change. It's not about plastic surgeries. You know, that's living like I'm mostly a body with a little bit of a soul. We need deep soul change. Well, how does deep soul change happen? Well, consider the ordinary people that were following Jesus in this story. Martha needed to learn about priorities. The disciples needed to learn about the prayer habit and that they could trust God. Uh, Stephen Smith, an author, says, although they didn't receive changed bodies on earth, they did experience the transformation of life itself, a revolutionized purpose, amended values, altered relationships, and revised views of God. No one was the same after following Jesus. Jesus had a way of altering everyone's life and he still does. But that change, friend, is not an instant one, two, three weeks kind of change. 21 days of prayer isn't enough. It takes a lifetime of practicing what we saw today, healthy priorities, praying in line with God's will, trusting the heart of God with ourselves. Will you do me a favor? Would you just quietly bow your head, close your eyes? And I just want you to hear these words from the Apostle Paul. He said, There has never been the slightest doubt in my mind that the God who started the great work in you would keep at it and bring it to a flourishing finish on the very day Christ Jesus appears. Friends, how is your soul? Do you want it to be happy, healthy, vibrant, full? Well, it comes by practicing on a regular basis the thing we talked about this morning, priorities. Prayer. Consistent small-time commitments. Trust. Our Heavenly Father, we, we come to You a needy people. 